Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. This video is actually a response video to myself. Yes, I'm doing a response video to myself. You see, not too long ago I was asked and privileged and honored to be on The Book YouTube channel ministry where they interview authors of certain books. And so I sent them my book, uh, the second one that I've written, A Biblical Sketch, uh, Free Grace Theology. And I sent them the book to go ahead and see if it's something they'd be interested in reading and reviewing and stuff like that. And they had me on their program. And so I didn't know what questions they were going to ask. Everything was off the cuff. And so when they asked a question on dispensationalism, hence the reason for this video and the topic, uh, I was just droning on and on and on about one aspect of dispensationalism. I was just stammering over my words, just talking about uh, anything about hermeneutics but nothing about the main umbrella of dispensationalism and I just feel like I look like a complete fool and I probably confused a lot of people and I did dispensationalism no justice in that video and so like I said this video is a response to my uh, just ignorant speaking on that particular question and so I want to talk about personally for me what are five reasons why dispensationalism is important why does dispensationalism matter and the first thing I would argue is that dispensationalism rightly divides the Word of God. And so if we believe that Scripture is the Word of God, all 66 letters were inspired by God and given to us as divine revelation of Himself and His plan, His kingdom plan for the world and everybody, then we would do well to go ahead and apply dispensational hermeneutics to understand it properly. In other words, dispensationalism looks at understanding the Scripture from a literal sense that we seek the plain sense of the meaning of the scriptures unless context dictates otherwise. And so we prevent allegorizing uh, passages like in Genesis or in Exodus or other areas, and we seek to understand what did the text actually mean to the people when it was written, when it was given. This is the historical grammatical uh, method where we try to understand what did it mean to them then and what does it mean to us today based on the theological principle. And then grammatical in the sense that words have meaning. And then the syntax of the sentence has meaning and they were structured a particular way for a particular reason. So we try to understand it from its grammatical perspective, the semantic range of words, context, uh, the historical aspect of what's been going on, and then taking the words literally unless context dictates otherwise. And the second reason why it's important is because, like I said, this prevents allegorical understanding and interpretations in just being able to make the scripture say whatever we want it to say. Again, if this is God's divine revelation to you and I, then we do well to understand it as it was meant to be understood. And since we understand that all 66 letters were written by a specific person to a specific person or a group, for a specific reason, we would all do well to figure out what that was. And within this framework, we have to understand literary genres. We have to understand what is poetry, what is wisdom literature, what is historical, what is epistles, letters. And so we understand all the various genres within scripture, and we seek to understand and interpret it based upon its genre. Now, we're not going to go to uh, the book of Psalms and when it says God is a strong tower and really believe that God is, is literally a tower. We understand the symbolism that's used there because the literary genre is actually poetry. And then when we get to historical narratives, we understand that what's being captured is history. 
Now, the thing about history is history doesn't create or formulate doctrine. History can simply illustrate doctrine. And so history tends to be much more descriptive than it is prescriptive. And so that's an interesting, that's a very important distinction that needs to be made. The third reason why dispensationalism matters is because understanding the different ways in which God has dealt with mankind and the different dispensations, if you will, ways of management, stewarding of mankind has changed through the years. For instance, now when we look at the Mosaic law, we look at the era of law, when God has given the law upon Mount Sinai to Moses all the way up to the cross, we understand that the law was given to the Israeli people, to the Israeli nation, the Jewish people, and they had covenanted with God under this law. Because Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, fulfilled the law, and completely abolished it, then that removed the law and entered in the era of grace. And Jesus talks about this in the Gospels as well, and Paul talks about this as well in the New Testament. And so we are no longer under the law, but we are now under an era called grace, and that's within the church age. There's a difference, there's a distinction. For instance, if we read in Malachi chapter 3, God pronounces a stiff judgment to the people in Malachi chapter 3 because they did not give the proper tithes and offerings that God has commanded. And then God says through Malachi that, test me, try me, bring back your tithes and offerings and see if I don't open the windows of heaven to pour out a blessing. Many times people want to take that passage and they want to apply it to the church or to a Christian today and then try to figure out why is God not blessing us when we're giving all this money to him. Because that passage was not meant for the church or for us today. That passage was under the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, given specifically to the Jewish people in the nation of Israel. This ties into Deuteronomy, I think it's 27 through 29, where the Mosaic Law says, If you will, then I will. If you don't, then I will do this judgment to you. And so Israel has covenanted with God to go ahead and be in obedience with God, to go ahead and receive blessings, or in disobedience, receive judgments and curses from God. It was a specific covenant by God to the Israeli people that they covenanted with him by. The same things in Jeremiah chapter 29, where you get the famous verse, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future, a hope, and expected end. And we see this as far as graduation ceremonies are concerned, and telling people, Oh, God's got a future for you. Now, in a principle, yes, God does have a future and a desire and a will for people. But in context, what that passage is talking about is specifically to the nation of Israel, again, because they're under Babylonian captivity. In the book of Jeremiah, there was false prophets saying, hey, we're about to be freed. We're about to get out of Babylonian captivity. Seventy years hasn't happened yet. So Jeremiah is telling these people, no. God said this Babylonian captivity is judgment for the nation of Israel because of our disobedience and idolatry against God. And God has promised and pronounced 70 years. And so Jeremiah is saying, hey, ignore these false prophets. God has promised 70 years of judgment. You need to go ahead and sit, have families, build houses, plant vineyards, and seek peace of the city. And then after the 70 years, God will free us. And that's where Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in. He says, I have a plan for you. I will prosper you again. 
And so it's God's promise to Israel that going through the Babylonian captivity, that God has not forgiven, God has, or God has not forgotten, God has not forsaken, and that God's plan is going to continue on. And so there's differences. We can't take Jeremiah 29, 11. We can't take Malachi chapter 3 and apply it to us today and to the church because it was written under the period of law, under the Mosaic covenant to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel for a specific purpose. And those don't apply to the era of grace today. The fourth reason why dispensationalism matters is because it shows a clear distinction between the church and between Israel. Now, Israel does not get a free pass to eternal life. Every Jewish person still needs to place faith in the Messiah for their sins upon the cross. They need to be saved just the same way as everybody else needs to come and get saved and receive eternal life. But what we do understand is Israel is distinct in the fact that Israel is still the elect of God. In the Old Testament, Israel is called the apple of God's eye in that he has chosen Jacob and rejected Esau. In other words, we read in Genesis that it was a reference to two uh, nations in the womb, in that Edom was the na or Esau was the nation of Edom, which was rejected, and Jacob was the nation of Israel, which was accepted. In other words, God elected Jacob or Israel to be his chosen nation, not unto eternal life, not unto salvation, but he chose Israel to be the nation in which he would glorify himself and magnify himself. Israel has always been a special people group and nation for God's purposes. That has not changed through history. Israel has also covenanted with God, and God has made promises, unconditional promises to Israel, and there's uh, two conditional covenants, and the rest are unconditional. The two conditional were the Edemic uh, covenant in the Garden of Eden, where if you eat of this tree of knowledge, you know, you will die. And then the other is the Mosaic covenant, where God said, if you obey, I will do this. If you disobey, I will do this. So those were conditional. Every other covenant with Israel is unconditional. The Davidic covenant, you got uh, the land covenant, you got the seed covenant. All these other covenants were unconditional. The new covenant, unconditional. God simply says, I will. And because of this, those covenants are still applicable to the Israeli people, the Israeli nation, because if they're unconditional covenants, and if God has taken them and placed them on the church, then that means God broke his promise. And we know that God is not man that he should lie. And we know that God keeps his promise and he is faithful. And so all the covenants made to Israel are still there, regardless of if the national leadership rejected Messiah or not. They are still applicable to Israel, and Israel will see the fruition of these covenants, while the Gentiles and the church will be able to partake and be blessed by some of them as well. This prevents replacement theology, which is a heresy, and it teaches that uh, there's no more covenants placed to the church, to Israel, that they're all placed upon the church. This is a heretical teaching because there is still a need for the Jewish people to call Messiah back at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, I think verse number 39, that you will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a messianic title and a greeting. Romans chapter 10 talks about how the remnant of Israel will repent and turn back to God and call for Messiah. We see this in passages in Revelation as well. In Zechariah uh, chapter 13 or 14, it talks about two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed through the tribulation period. 
but there will be one-third Jewish remnant that remains, and they will pray to God, and they will seek deliverance and put faith in Messiah. And he says, I will hear my people. And so there is a clear distinction between Israel and the church. The church has not replaced Israel, as some people are heretically speaking. The fifth uh, major purpose for dispensationalism, the fifth reason why it matters, is because we understand that different periods of eras, if you will, provides clarity in discerning prophetical passages. And so if we understand that Jesus Christ is going to have a messianic kingdom, only really a dispensational framework allows clarity as to when this is going to happen. In Daniel chapter 9, you get verses 24 through 27. It talks about the 70th week of Daniel. And Daniel references the fact that uh, it's specifically for thy people and thy city. And so we understand that the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, is referencing the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Everyone else is affected, but its main purpose is for them. And then there's the promise that Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his millennial kingdom. We get a glimpse of this also in Daniel chapter number 12 and other passages. The fact that Jesus Christ will come back and then he will put Satan, lock him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then he will start his messianic kingdom, his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Only a dispensational framework allows us to understand that Jesus Christ comes and then establishes thousand-year reigns, i.e. premillennialism, and it allows us to reject amillennialism, that is just symbolic or an allegory, or postmillennialism, in which the church has to bring in this utopian society before Jesus Christ comes back, and the church has to do this for a thousand years. That would never happen. If we understand passages in the New Testament talking about how uh, the world is going to become much, much more immoral and ungodly, and men are going to be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, arrogant, truce breakers, on and on, and that the man of sin cannot be revealed until uh, the restrainer is taken away, what I believe is the Holy Spirit, the rapture, the body of Christ. Uh, so we understand prophetically that a premillennialism view is the only biblical view according to the text, along with, I would argue, pre-tribulationalism as well. It teaches the rapture of the church according to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, and it talks about other passages where the church will be raptured away, snatched away, if you will, and taken with God prior to the tribulation period. You see, there's a lot of reasons why dispensationalism teaching matters. There's a lot of misrepresentation and caricatures of dispensational teaching as well. While I will say there may be some hyper-dispensationalists that do teach contrary to what I've just been talking about, most dispensationalists hold to pretty much what I've just said. And so please do not commit the fallacy of hasty generalization in saying because a small fringe group over here says this or that, that everybody within the camp says it. Now, the minority doesn't speak for the whole. We need to allow the majority to speak for what the teaching actually is because the majority holds that particular teaching. And so that was this, like I said, a response video to my own uh, ignorant speaking and lack of words the other day. So hopefully I didn't confuse anybody else. Uh, let me know in the comments below how stupid I am, how much I'm wrong, stuff like that. I like hearing that. Don't forget to like, comment, share, subscribe, blah, 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 blah. And until next time, God bless.